0: This episode is sponsored by Bank of America. Bank of America is leading the financing of low-carbon, sustainable business activities across the globe. Since 2007, it has mobilized over $350 billion and has committed $1 trillion by 2030 to environmental transition. See the impact at bankofamerica.com slash sustainablefinance.
1: GreenBiz Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why it's time to rethink human rights in the boardroom, a new alliance of carbon removal buyers, why system change is the new sustainability, and what happens when you try, don't succeed, but come up with something better. It turns out failure is an option this week on 350. It's June 3rd, 2022. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, no doubt feeling a tad summery, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather.
0: Hey, Joel. It is hot, hot, hot on the East Coast, but you know yeah. that
1: because yeah, you I, were- I, Yeah.
2: I experienced some of
1: that <laughs> a, a couple of weekends ago when I was uh, my wife and I were in New York City and then upstate, but mm-hmm. yeah, there was a grueling weekend there mm-hmm. that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was- uh, but, you know, I did something that was kind of fun that I'd never done before um, just to get out because it was so hot. And I was sort of a, one of those things I sort of wanted to do, but I'm not a big tourist kind of guy. We took the Circle Line tour uh, that goes uh, circumnavigates uh, Manhattan you know, up, the, up the Hudson and, down the, and then uh, the East River and the Harlem River. And it was pretty fun, uh, you know, a little bit too much patter from the guide who had to joke around every building in New York and <laughs> see, but, but it was really great to see that and of course go out to the Statue of Liberty and all that. So it was fun to play tourist and get a little bit out of the heat uh, mm-hmm. for that uh, for that one afternoon. So yeah, that was fun.
0: Did you have a good vacation otherwise? I mean, what else you did you do? Yeah, I
1: drove upstate and- uh, Upstate New York. Hug- Upstate New York, uh, uh, Hudson, and uh, and, and up, up there all the way to uh, North Adams, uh, Massachusetts, where the uh, Mass, Mass of the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, is. Mm-hmm. Doing a lot of art stuff along the way. And so, yeah, it's great to, mm-hmm. great to do that. And it's always great to be home. How about you? How's your summer starting to shape up?
0: Yeah, it's starting to shape up. I'm, uh, believe it or not, going to go to... Um, We're just planning some stuff for Pennsylvania. Um, I there's a lot of little day trips there, including to the uh, Crayola crayon factory and the Peep factory. Um, Wait,
1: wait, the Crayola. You go to the Crayola (laughs) crayon factory. That is so cool. I'm going to go
0: to the Crayola. Yes, I'm going to go to both of them. Um, What?
1: what, Why? uh, What? Tell me about that. How's that happening? Is that is this for professional
0: purposes? No, this is just. I. I mean, why not? Um, It just it it's i love doing fun um like i like doing industrial tours um and in fact uh they have um one of the old bethlehem steel factories they have tours of that um and i i just love learning about the the history of of the country I and mean, manufacturing it just always you know it just gives me um perspective when i'm reporting and there's a lot of industry in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, it's one of these things you don't do when you're growing up in New Jersey, you just don't really think about it. And I'm just trying to get expand my horizons as far as what's around us. And, and I
1: love yeah. factory tours. In fact, uh, back in the, in 1980s, when I was in the book publishing business, I was toying with uh, publishing or, or pr- producing a book for a New York publisher mm-hmm. uh, about factory tours. Uh, it was, it was going to be called America behind the scenes. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and uh, sort of the best factory tours around the country, I've, I mean, I've done a lot of them. And, and as part of our Green business uh, Executive Network, uh, the, the membership uh, peer group we have of about 95 uh, large companies who host meetings around the mostly around the United States, um, we've gotten some great, great factory tours, the midnight Tour of the FedEx Memphis Hub. Mm -hmm. You know, we we saw the world's only lead-certified French fry factory. That was the one I was really jealous about. Yes, and and (laughs) uh, and you know, auto factories and and just on Mm -hmm. and on. Mm -hmm. I totally agree that we don't get to see spend enough time seeing how our stuff is made, Mm -hmm. and that is a a hugely entertaining, engaging, and enlightening experience that I've had. I'll tell you my, my first one. We used to have a a cookie company here in Oakland called Mother's Cookies. I think I still see a sign out there, but I think Mm -hmm. it's just a a, a legacy. It's not really a company. And one of the things they made were those, you know, those little wafer, those little rectangular wafers that have cream filling and they come in, Mm -hmm. you know, white, brown, and strawberry, allegedly flavored, but who knows. (laughs) Uh, uh, When I was a Cub Scout, yes, I was a Cub Scout for about three months we did a tour of the mother's cookie factory where we saw sheets of uncut sheets of those cookies that at the time felt like they were the size of a football field. I'm sure they were like maybe 10 by 20 feet or something like that, but they just were so enormous and made such an impression on me that here I am talking about it some 60 years later. Uh, But, you know, just seeing that stuff and that, Oh my God, these little cookies actually start off as, you know, what I, Start off as sheets, but they were sheets before that. They were all these different ingredients. That that was just such an eye opener for me, and I've never lost my taste for factory tours. So good on you! I can't wait to hear about the Crayola factory and what's the other one peeps did you peeps, say
0: peeps peeps yeah wow. they, they make i know i i my yeah. husband loves them joe loves them and i'm just like uh-huh. they make i just Bleh. but still i mean they have things like where that you where you can go and you basically they have a diorama a competition i don't know if you knew that you know put your peeps in a, di- a diorama. <laughs> <laughs> <All right.
1: laughs>
0: so yeah anyway but uh my my little quick factory and i actually it wasn't me it was my brothers but my um I've talked before about my father being uh, an executive at M&M Mars, and we used to live in Hackistown, New Jersey, which is where the M&M's plant is, still is, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, this the, the town would reek of chocolate in the summer when it was really hot. It was kind of like, ooh. But my brothers, one, one holiday, one Christmas holiday, my brothers were part of the crew that cleaned the vats. They, they would shut them down and clean them out. And they couldn't eat chocolate for like weeks afterwards because they had just been so, they were like, oh, we can't even smell it. You know, so anyway, fun, fun facts, fun facts. Yeah, well,
1: we, we, we've wasted enough of I our uh, dear audience's time <laughs> reminiscing about our, <laughs> our childhood experiences. So let's move on and get into the week in review. I'm going to turn the spotlight on you uh, to start off, Heather, because you wrote a piece about an initiative involving uh, Alphabet, the Google folk, parent company, Microsoft, and Salesforce, uh, that making a big commitment to support carbon removal projects. um, And uh, some things that I uh, I think may also have been discussed uh, in Davos last week uh, with the World Economic Forum. But talk about the First Movers Coalition and – these these new initiatives.
0: Yes, so thank you. These buyer consortiums keep popping up, uh, especially with respect to buying carbon removal credits or offsets that are more specific to engineered technology than to, to other things. So like we've talked ad nauseum in the past about the forest, you know, the ones related to forestry projects. These are more related to direct air capture and other advanced carbon removal approaches. So what's happening now um, during the World Economic Forum Davos gathering last week, the First Movers Coalition made some announcements around this specific part of the market. So, for the those who don't know what the First Movers Coalition is, it was a it is an, a, a group, that a coalition um, announced last year at uh, the COP gathering. And it was um, engineered, if you will, by John Kerry, the U.S. special presidential envoy. Along with the World Economic Forum, and the idea is to have big corporations make commitments, procurement commitments to low-carbon technologies or approaches. So, so it started out with some commitments related to steel production, right? We're going to buy steel produced in a certain way. Aviation, so corporations saying, "Yes, we're going to." commit to investing this much money in, you know, sustainable aviation fuel. And there's, there's initiatives, uh, around trucking and aluminum and chemicals. So now they're moving, um, their attention to these carbon removal credits and they're, they're characterized by permanence or characterized by, as, as I mentioned before, advanced technologies. And during the, this new commitment, the, you know, the three that you just mentioned committed $500 million to, um, this sort of investment. So, in other words, they're going to put their money in these places as opposed
1: to other places. Um, and is this is this philanthropy, or what are they going to get out of they're,
0: this? I mean, they're getting they're getting the credits. Um, they're they're getting credits from these approaches. Um, this is a this I am in many ways. This is part of the incredible amount of news we're seeing around the development of carbon marketplaces right now. Um, this is so. This is one aspect of it. This is. Basically trying to create a, a supply of, of more high quality, more permanent, more, um, you know, more, <laughs> even just more uh, carbon credits that companies can buy to offset their, um, some of their historical emissions, as in the case of Microsoft, um, some of the things they can't do quite right, you know, quite right away, like as far as actual investments so, you know because all three of these companies are actually investing also in technologies that, that will make things more efficient that will remove carbon from the processes but at the same time they're saying yeah we need we at this time we we also do need to go out and get get these credits um and I think that the intention is to have something like uh 1 million metric tons among these groups right now and that's you know that's the the idea is also to you know, provide the buying signals for the startups to, to make, yeah, to make it more cost effective.
1: So it strikes me that, you know, Google, Microsoft, and Salesforce, the three companies that you might write about here are always, I mean, they are the usual Mm -hmm. suspects, throw Mm -hmm. in Apple and a couple of others and you've got a complete set. Um, They're not part of this yet, but, but those, how does this break out beyond the, the, the usual suspects, the ones who are always at the table uh, to become uh, uh, more more of a mainstream mass movement.
0: Well, I'm glad you asked, Joel. So this is that was one of the sort of that was the marquee announcement, if you will. But there was there's it also triggered some other co- programs. There's something called the Next Gen CDR facility. That's um, <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> what a fun name. But basically, um, that's a few other companies. So Boston Consulting Group, um, a private banking company called LGT. Fleet Manager, Mitsui, um, Swiss Re, the reinsurance company that we've talked about before, and financial services firm UBS. So those are big companies still, but they're different companies. They're also um, saying, yes, we're going to commit this. These sorts of technologies need our support. And so this is a sort of an offshoot program, a, um, a related program. And it's being run by South Pole, which is trying to also pull in other companies. So smaller companies over time um, the only other thing I'd like to say uh, about this topic is yeah we need a lot of um, more smaller mid-sized companies involved in this and I think um, what's happening in in terms of this marketplace right now is there's a lot of interesting blockchain initiatives started starting to target this and trying to help make it more efficient now I personally think that's not exactly where we need the investment right now I mean it, it's great that we want to have these marketplaces, but we we really need these. We need the we need credible, real projects, I think, in order to have the credits to trade. So I think I'd like to see more focus there. But yeah, a lot of uh, things going on. And yeah, I think we should move on to the next topic. But Uh,
1: well, let's move on to two big think pieces we ran this week. Uh, So they're it has to do with uh, human rights in the border as a boardroom issue this is from Lisa Kingo uh, Lisa was uh, used to be the head of UN Global Compact she's now uh, described herself as an independent board director sit's so on a number of different uh, corporate boards and we're lucky enough to have her as a, one of our regular contributors and and she's uh, talking about the role of, of human rights uh, obviously part of the social justice agenda Um as uh as a new issue uh, or an emerging issue for, for corporate boards um and uh talks about uh you know in europe the gaining a momentum of, of hu- mandatory human rights due diligence in other words uh requiring companies to to really know what they're getting into with their supply chains when it comes to to uh, what they call a clean healthy and sustainable environment for workforce um uh, interesting development. I also, you know, looking at this through through my uh, U.S. lens, cringe a little bit about wow, this is going to be seen as another part of the woke agenda that's now under attack by all sorts of folks. Um, but um, what did, what's your takeaway on 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 this? Not just uh, the U.S. piece, but um, in terms of. How does this become part of corporate sustainability professionals work?
0: So I I think it puts more of a uh, face, if you will, to some of the social aspects of what um, what sustainability professionals should be worrying about. I think, you know, we've talked a long time about supply chains and smallholder farmers. And we heard a lot at Circularity about the plastics you know, the individuals responsible for collecting plastic waste. Um, There's just so many people, real people, humans in these supply chains that we haven't reflected enough about. Um, And it could be any, you know, I think from my perspective, um, you know, there's two big reasons to be thinking about this right now. Um, If you want to be really um, tactical or like just specific about it right now, we need to change how, where we're extracting certain materials and how we extract them. So like, if you think about what we wanna do with the electric vehicle movement or even just clean energy, we have, there's a lot of um, mining considerations and extraction considerations that we need to be thinking about that we haven't. And many, um, a lot of, in, in the United States, for example, a lot of the places where we could get the minerals and metals that we need for for these things are on indigenous lands. And so if we're not thinking about how to approach or to recognize the rights of these individuals as we develop a strategy, we're going to we're, we're going you know it's going to create issues down the road. I think and and, and not not and it's just, I mean it's just right thing to do, period as well.
1: Yeah. And there's very much a, a link to, to climate change here because climate is one of the biggest threats right. to human rights. Uh, it poses risks to you know life, health, food, standard of living uh, to individuals and communities around the world. And, and there's been a lot written about that. And yeah, it hasn't been as much of a of a corporate issue, except to the extent of you know abuses that are either noticed mm-hmm. and you know, legal, but. But now got caught, you know, a company got caught doing something that was legal, but but unethical or immoral, think, uh, or in some cases were actually illegal. And yeah. so I think, yeah. you know, given that as we're seeing ESG and, and, and climate and sustainability, or increasingly from a corporate perspective around risk, uh, you know, the risk of uh, human rights abuses and the risk of not respecting the, the health and well being of, of not just uh, those in the supply chain but also the communities is going to become mm-hmm. a liability for for companies increasingly. Yes. So um, I just wonder, you know, how this uh, you know, again I'm going to go back to the uh, it's great it's great that a number of, of of countries uh in Europe and and apparently uh France, Germany, the Netherlands and Norway and 11 other European countries are actively working towards uh due diligence laws uh that require companies to uh to to report on human rights and, and the europe, european commission has a uh, corporate sustainability due diligence directive um you know and of course that affects uh i'm sure uh, u.s companies uh and multinational companies uh of any type that are uh, doing business in europe so this is going to become uh as esg started off uh, really uh, taking shape in europe at least the mandatory reporting kinds of things this is gonna be coming across the pond once again.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the other things I wanted to mention just to, to put a bow on this, as I mentioned, there were two things. The other thing is I think that the rights of women are, um, you know, here in the United States are definitely under a threat. Um, and when you think about that and extrapolate forward you, and, and how, how women have been affected by COVID-19 I mean, there's still many women not in the workforce, and how do they get back in the workforce? And if you're not thinking about how to protect uh, women and girls, and well, I know not word, protect is the right word, but empower them to be part of the economy and to be part of society. It's interesting to me that, like, if you think about many of these, like, to point back to the supply chain, many of sort of the the things that are happening at the at the very start of the supply chains are the face of women and girls. And so, you know, I think that that's the other factor here. And how how do these people feel about joining the workforce? What do the next generations feel about um, companies and how they're treating their people? So that's the other factor.
1: Yeah, supporting women and girls and protecting them because there's still lots of, lots of abuses of all yeah. kinds uh, yeah. of, of, of women and girls around the world. And and that seems to be baked into the the, the systems that exist. but. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about systems mm-hmm. and system change. and And our Maven uh, on that topic is Frank Dixon, who's the uh, founder of a, of a company called Global System Change. <laughs> uh, writes occasionally about this this topic and and specifically around something that uh, he coined back uh, a long time ago called uh, uh, global system change. It's calls the whole system approach uh, and and uh, system change investing. Uh, two, two different approaches that he's, uh, he's coined and, and, and written about. And, and he, he wrote a piece for us that sort of looks at, at sort of that system changes, the new sustainability, uh, and, um, and talks about how what once seemed like sort of a way out there, uh, vague uh, and, and overly ambitious notion about change, system changes now starting to bubble up in a number of different ways and and how that uh is not only necessary but also needs some structure and framework and that's what he's proposing here uh talking about his his uh, approach to that um it's interesting it's still very big picture um and i think what he does here that's interesting is he brings in the old uh, sri socially responsible investing mm-hmm. with the corporate system change with the global mm-hmm. view of, of of changing systems um and yeah, I mean, we wrote about system change. I wrote a couple pieces about it uh, earlier this year, last year. I've lost track. Uh, that talked about what does it really mean and how do we do it? And because we can talk about system change a lot, but he's actually laid out a framework here.
0: Yeah, we have some more coming, by the way, hint hint, um, in terms of contributions about system change. Um, but I, yeah, I think for me, like, this is one of those topics where I. I feel like I I need a, to learn a lot more, but I liked the framing of the investing, like thinking about putting this into the investment lens and understanding. It, like a part of me was like wondering if it was somewhat of a semantic shift, right, in terms of just what you're calling this out as. Um, but I loved the you know the the idea that maybe if we talk about it as this and not putting the sort of um, to to your to your um earlier comment the woke angle on it I, I think when when you talk about it in these terms in terms of economics and um you know how you can actually pull off change in a system and you know i mean that's um, it it for me that 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 helped me understand this a little bit more than i I've, I've been able to grasp this issue in the in the past i mean it's just still and I'm, I think I'm not the only one. It's still like a little bit befuddled. And how do how do you talk about this? And you know, does that mean you shouldn't look for incremental change? You know, like that. That's the one thing I. You know, so we we talk about every little thing counts. I guess does every little thing count until you need really something big, or does do the little things push into the big thing? I that's what I'm still kind of wondering about myself. You know?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, here's here's what struck me in reading this is that. Systems are changing right now.
0: Without us (laughs) doing anything about
1: it. (laughs) Systems are changing. I mean, all kinds of them, you know, in in health and well-being and economics and social structures and democracy and and on and on and on. Um, And then, of course, the systems, you know, that are are being upended, uh, energy systems Mm -hmm. in Europe and Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Uh, The systems are changing. The question is, do we... Get our arms around it, or does it control yeah. us? Yeah, uh, yeah. Do we do we think about this? And, and there's only so much one can control. Some of this is out of uh, out of our control, but uh, it doesn't have to be. Uh, we don't have to be the victims as much of it as as we are being ready and adaptable and resilient. And I think that's for me what's interesting about uh, you know thinking about system change and writing about it. It's it's a big picture issue, absolutely. A little amorphous, a little bit out there for a lot of folks, particularly if you're heads down working, worrying about, you know, how to meet the next deadline. But uh, but these are things that uh, that sustainability professionals and 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 others and companies need to be looking at and understanding. And figuring out how do we operate and more importantly, how do we succeed in a world that where system change is, is happening uh, and will likely happen more and more and more.
0: One of my favorite discussions during Circularity 22 last month was a session focused on mistakes. Yes, that's right. Things that didn't go quite right in the rollout of a new circular economy strategy or initiative. The session was aptly called Tried, Failed, Learned. And it featured high-level sustainability practitioners from cosmetics and personal care company L'Oreal, Apparel company Levi Strauss and office furniture company Human Scale. I've plucked three takeaways from the session. The first piece of advice: it is definitely possible to provide too much information, especially on consumer labels. Let's get to simplicity and clarity. Here's Marissa McGowan, Chief Sustainability Officer at L'Oreal, North America,
3: with some insights. Uh, in terms of working with the consumer on this and behavior change, I think it's one of our greatest challenges. I was mis- um, mentioning in the first example, bringing things back. We thought that, that if we can get people to bring things back, okay, that's the first step in the process, obviously, aside from eco-designing into that. But um, then what we were doing with retailers was actually trying to get all the all the types, it didn't matter what brand, bring it all back, but now we have to figure out what's our brand, what's not our brand. Um, In terms of the consumer, I also think, and this is not just circularity, we've been working since 2013 on doing product life cycle analysis and footprinting on all of our products and turning that into a a consumer facing label. It's rolled out in 20 countries in Europe and we're rolling it out in the US this year, doing a lot of consumer testing on that as well. But we're seeing, as we we start doing um, consumer insights, we know some of our friends are here who who have much more information on this. That there's just a sea of information, and it's in some cases a sea of generic information, badges, labels. Everyone has a different um, standard. So there are a few standards that are really well known, and and you know we're excited about, and we we endorse. But then uh, as all these different groups start coming up with things, it, it doesn't allow the consumer, I think, to make informed choices. So we're excited about giving the consumers that information and that transparency so that not only can they choose sustainable products and companies that are doing the hard work, but also that they can become part of, obviously, that virtuous circle. Um, if we can activate that consumer base, it, you know, the world is our oyster, I hope, from a circularity and sustainability perspective. But I do think that sea of sort of uh, generic, uh, use of the words eco. We know regulators are cracking down. I don't, I have high hopes for how seriously we'll take that, but I I think it's yet to be seen how they're going to enforce it. Second suggestion, make
0: sure to consider the ecosystem carefully in circular design experiences. On this topic, we hear from Jeffrey Hogue, Chief Sustainability Officer for Levi Strauss.
2: Well, I think, um, you know, as these concepts like Cradle to Cradle have come to the table and the El MacArthur Jeans Redesign Project, was, which was really based on uh, the principles of Cradle to Cradle, you have pretty much all the apparel companies that are producing denim jeans uh, kind of moving down a path towards circularity in jeans. But I think it's, it's important to note that it's not only about the product. I mean, as you guys all know quite well, it's about the ecosystem around taking back, sorting, cycling technology, those types of things. And so um, creating these products that are mixed with other materials, especially in fabric where you can't really logically take it apart mechanically, you have to always do it chemically now. Um, you, you know, we're striving towards producing products that don't have a lot of synthetic uh, materials in it. And so the the, the, <laughs> what big, you were referring the
1: to. The big reveal. It is.
2: <laughs> so we, we launched the, the Circular 501. This is like the first, the first fit. And um, the thing that's really interesting about this is that it has 40% um, post-consumer um, input. So it's basically chemically recycled cotton, which is actually viscose, which is kind of extruded and spun. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it removes all of those kind of synthetic materials like the the, the synthetic sewing thread and the, the the paper you know the paper label this is a cotton label that type of thing and so creating something that you know when you do recycle it you don't have to actually extract all the different types of components and and um, recover them.
0: The final piece of advice comes from Jane Abernethy, the chief sustainability officer at Human Scale. Here she addresses why business-to-business relationships, especially for durable goods, require a different set of considerations when planning a circular strategy. Here's Jane Abernethy.
4: Yeah, so about, I'd say 10 years ago, we had this, we had a, a couple of customers that asked, do you have a take back program? And we thought there was starting to be a market for this. So we thought we're bringing out a new chair, we'll develop it for that, with that in mind. We used very easily recyclable polymers, steel, it was made of maybe 10 components, easy to disassemble. We even molded into the bottom of the chair, like to, give, to bring it back to human scale, called this number. So we launched the chair, you know, the weeks go by, the months go by, years went by, and I think since then we've gotten one phone call in the whole Wait, time. Wait, well,
1: you haven't gotten one chair back?
4: We haven't got, well, I mean, we helped with that one phone call, but <laughs> 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 it's, it, we, we really didn't get the barrage of, like, people saying, okay, now we, even though during the sales process, some people were asking, do you have a take-back program? You know, can you handle this at the end of life? And so we set up the system to, to be able to do that. And so then we had to look at what was this big um, distance between something that's theoretically designed to be circular with that in mind, Communicated about during the sales process, and then, like, what happened in reality was a very different situation. And a couple of things came to mind for us. One was that durable goods really have a different set of considerations because things change so much over time. And, you know, that'll be true for all durable goods. Um, For us, what that looked like is that the person who purchased it would maybe no longer be at that um, we sell uh, business to business so that person may not be at that role anymore that that intention and knowledge may not have been you know had continuity over time and then the other thing that came up for us was the really importance of systems thinking and a systems approach which you've also mentioned Um, and so we found that we what we had been trying to do without realizing it was we had tried to create one circular product within an existing linear system. And how that works um, in our example was that you might have, when somebody's building out an office space, the interior designer specifier will be, they'll be a project manager, they'll make sure to get the window shades from this company and the carpets from this company and the lighting from this company and the chair from this company when that same space is gonna be renovated, they don't necessarily reach back to this lighting company and this chair company and they don't have a project manager to do all of that work to manage the materials leaving. Mm-hmm. So you know, we, where we got to in the end so far, and we're still working on it, was we realized that we couldn't just say like, of all the stuff you're dealing with, we're gonna take that one little, you know, our product, our chair out of your whole mix of things you're dealing with. We started to partner more deeply with our clients and when they're renovating, you know, help to deal with our material, but then also all the material that they're trying to handle. If you want to watch
0: the whole session, and I highly recommend it, head on over to the Green Biz YouTube channel.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned. And while you're over on that side, check out our free weekly newsletters—all seven of them—and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com/newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Just hit us up 350 at greenbiz.com. I'll be off next week in Amsterdam uh, doing some speaking and meetings and such. But uh, Heather will be here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCauer. We'll see you next time.
0: This episode is sponsored by Bank of America. Bank of America is leading the financing of low carbon, sustainable business activities across the globe. Since 2007, it has mobilized over $350 billion and has committed $1 trillion by 2030 to environmental transition. See the impact at bankofamerica.com slash sustainablefinance.